name is Mary Matthews. Um, I currently live in Cookville, Tennessee, um, and I'm assistant professor of flute at Tennessee Tech University. Uh, but I am from Rochester, New York, born and raised, and lived five different states between Rochester and Tennessee, but, but happy to be where I am now. Uh, I'm Nicole Chamberlain. Uh, I live in Doraville, Georgia, which is basically Atlanta. Um, and I am a freelance composer and flutist, so I write a lot of my music. I, I publish my own music um, and freelance as a flutist, and I actually teach a, a little private studio. Awesome. That's awesome. I'm so happy that both of you are here and that you're able to, you know, speak on your perspectives and your stories as well. Um, I just like to start with everybody that I'm in the show and just ask both of you what got you started in music in the first place. Do you want to go first? No. No? Okay. Go. <laughs> Nosies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's see. So I started playing the flute when I was actually in second grade. Um, I went to this small Catholic school where we all played recorder in second grade. And then they told us that we could start a band instrument if we were basically big enough to hold it <laughs> in third grade. Which and, you never uh, were. I know, right? It was so big <laughs> when I look back at pictures. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, and so they gave me the choice between clarinet and flute because I really took to recorder, I guess. And my only motivation for picking flute was that it was shiny, and I thought it was pretty. That's <laughs> ah, classic. So, my third grade brain. So on brand. So on brand. Nothing yes. has changed. <laughs> and uh, yeah, no one in my family um, played an instrument or, or did anything. My immediate family did anything with music. So basically, I just started young, and I um, switched to public school. Uh, in sixth grade, so there was all of a sudden a big band program, and um, it was my band director in sixth grade who said to my parents, like, she's pretty good at this, you should find her a teacher. And my parents, you know, not, not being in the music scene, were like, I thought you were her teacher. <laughs> and then that's when my band director, you know, explained private instruction. Um, and we were very lucky, again, being raised in Rochester to have Eastman right there. Mm -hmm. um, so my private flute teacher that she recommended, Jan Angus, uh, teaches in the um, continuing ed division is what they call it now. At the time, it was called the Eastman Prep Program. Um, and so I started studying with her in seventh grade. And then she got me into the whole diploma program there, the pre-college diploma program. So through Eastman, I got to take, you know, theory and history and be in a flute choir. And I auditioned for the Rochester Philharmonic uh, Youth Orchestra that I played in for um, two years. And I really just from high school on never saw myself doing anything else. It, it never felt like a choice because that was just always what I loved the most and where I felt I excelled and my role models, my band directors and my flute teacher, um, I just wanted to be them, you know, when I grew up. Yeah. And uh, my mom was a career counselor, which was very helpful. So she asked all of the questions of career versus hobby. What makes you want to do this? Like, are you willing to work incredibly hard since this is a challenging field? Mm -hmm. um, and then our joke, she was like, well, I think you should just keep going until someone tells you to quit. So my joke now is like, no one's told me to quit yet, so I guess I'll, I'll keep going. A lot of um, people tell you to stop, I know. Stop, like, <laughs> it's a lot. Stop rising the piccolo. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. So I went to um, Baldwin-Wallace, uh, which you did too, the RPW yeah. connection. YJ4L. Okay. Yes. I'm done. <laughs> 
I love I loved BW. Um, and George Pope yeah. was my teacher at BW, and he's still I've adopted him. I know. Yeah. He's, <laughs> yes, he's, he's still he's there. Great. I know. Still oh, kicking. Yeah. I know. He's so great, and just you know, graduating year after year of incredible flutists and good people too. That's what mm-hmm. I love about him and his studio. There is that studio culture and being supportive and friendships and all were just very important and I use that a lot you know now that I'm teaching um yeah and then I went to Peabody for my master's degree in Baltimore I went right from Mm -hmm. undergrad to grad school um and that's where I met my husband Mm -hmm. who's a trumpet player and um oh those trumpet players I know those trumpet players the worst (laughs) they had their wedding in the library we did I didn't go back in the George Peabody library that's right she was invited but she couldn't make it yeah (laughs) it's busy busy that day (laughs) um yeah so we met and we graduated both of us from Peabody in 2010 and I took a year off um and did the whole like private teaching freelancing thing kind of the sink or swim can I pay my bills with this while not in school yeah (laughs) and it, it worked out pretty well and uh and then I did my doctorate at the Hart School of Music um in West Hartford Connecticut and um my teacher there is really like my huge inspiration for solidifying that I wanted to go into collegiate teaching. Mm-hmm. At the time, I, I was pretty sure I wanted to, which is why I did the doctorate and there were assistantship teaching opportunities there. Um, but she just really, I feel like she taught me how to teach at that level and gave me so much of what I know now as, a, as an educator of you know college students. And, um, and I had a chance to direct the flute choir and teach some private lessons, you know, at the college level, like non-majors or mentoring undergrads. Um, and I had a private studio of like 45 pre-college students also and did Suzuki training. So at one point there, I was teaching ages four through 82, <laughs> all, you know, <laughs> back to back. And it was a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, after that point, um, we moved out to Boulder, Colorado. So my husband started his doctorate when I finished mine and he went to CU Boulder. And I did the whole freelancing, private teaching. I was teaching at a a country day school, so a private school where you don't um, need a music education degree to teach there because I Mm -hmm. don't have one of those. (laughs) All my (laughs) kids are in performance or teaching the college level. And it was a really great four years that motivated me to do a lot of, um, you know, new projects and work with Nicole a lot. We actually mm. worked a ton together, even though we were. Yeah. I'd kind of so written you apart. off when you moved right? out there. You were like, I'm never going to see you again <laughs> no. now. Yeah, it's too far. <laughs> but I think we saw each other the most when you yeah. were out there. Yeah. But then the first time she flew to Boulder and saw how beautiful it was, she's like, all right, I'll keep coming right. up. I'll keep coming back. <laughs> I was like, oh, it is pretty. Yeah. Oh. And uh, yeah, we did our album during that time when I was living in Colorado. Yeah. And um, so then in 2018, Brandon was finishing up his doctorate. And then, so that's the year I was, really seriously applying for professorships that came up and I applied for a bunch and had a bunch of interviews and then I picked um, Tennessee Tech and we moved uh, summer of 2018 Mm -hmm. and so now I'm going on my fourth year there which is wild because it feels like yeah (laughs) feels like I'm still new to Tennessee Um, and that's been wonderful I just love my my students and colleagues and the really fun thing about being close to Nashville is that I've started doing a little bit of session work with Mm. you know movies and video games and all of that and so that's been a new dynamic to my performing (laughs) career that I hadn't had before yeah awesome yeah what about you Nicole (laughs) um it's I mean it started out actually kind of similar to Mary I mean I started in the third grade on recorder um my I'm the youngest of three and so my oldest sister played clarinet 
And so I grad. she taught me how to read sheet music and play recorder. And then she actually started me on clarinet. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and then I hated the fact that my reeds kept breaking and I couldn't <laughs> play. And then like, it was like an hour to the music store because back in my day, there was no internet. <laughs> so you had to drive to the music store. Um, and so that wasn't a thing that was, was easy to do. And so I, there was a flute player at our church and she, uh, was a substitute for the Savannah symphony, which is where we were living at the time. My dad was in the army, so we moved around mm. quite a bit. Um, but, um, well, I didn't, I was, by the time we moved to Savannah, he was, he was close to retirement. Um, so anyway, uh, so I switched to flute because I watched her play and I could just never figure it. Like, how does that work? And for me, that was the main motivator. I just, I just didn't understand. And I wanted to know. Um, and I was hooked. I played all the time. It was an easy transition from clarinet to flute. Um, the hardest thing was making a note. And then after that, yep. it was pretty similar to recorder. You know, Sounds about right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. There was, there were many sessions of me like, I'm going to pass out. I'm fine. Let's keep going. Um, <laughs> um, and, you know, my mom, I, you know, she regretted never being a musician. Um, she played piano some and then quit. And so I think she tried really hard with Galen and Galen played my, my oldest uh, sister. She went through high school playing clarinet and I would, where there were, there's a nine year difference between my older sister and me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, which is, she was like a third parent at some points. Um, so we'd go to all her high school concerts and, and stuff. And I was nine at the time. And um, so I loved that. And my mom tried with my middle sister to get her to play piano, no dice, but I always went to the piano lessons with her. Um, so by the time I wanted to play flute, my mom's like, okay, so (laughs) (laughs) like she'd given up, like the other two had fizzled out. And so she had kind of given up on me. And so like this friend of ours that went with us to buy a $40 flute at a pawn shop, like your Bundy. Um, Mm -hmm. and then we had it overhauled by a really nice, uh, woodwind tech in Savannah, like the only woodwind tech in Savannah who did it for nothing. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, I stuck with it. And then I decided in my infinite wisdom that I would double major in college in um, graphic design and and um, music composition. That's and, a lot. Yeah, right. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Um, and I never could get into the graphic design department. They rejected me every time. Uh, but they had just opened up a 3D department 3d animation department and i had been doing 2d animation in high school i studied mm. with a an animator in high school and so i decided to to go that route convinced by a friend to just go for that and got right in because of my history and my portfolio had 2d animation examples in it mm-hmm. uh, which was rare uh so i got in and did that and it's just when like Bugs Life had come out. So this is like 90, 98, 99. And I graduated in 2000. And I did that for a long time. I did a, I worked in a children's multimedia company. Uh, and that kind of like ended up being a bad idea. I mean, at, the, at the, this children's company, I did the music. So I wrote the music and I did like web animation. So like Flash was a big deal back in the day. And um it wasn't it wasn't a great job there were a lot of 
not so great people and the idea was like you didn't have a life outside of that industry and it's kind of rampant throughout that whole industry the movie and animation industry Mm -hmm. so um and i was going through some tough times so i left and uh uh you know got a steady web design job which had great people work hard play hard you know the whole the whole spiel and then that company got bought out um, and then it wasn't so great anymore. And so I decided I was like ridiculously unhappy, but yet I did not want to go to another web design job or even try to do 3D animation because I'd been out of 3D animation for so long that the technology was already surpassed where I was. Um, and so my then fiance, uh, Brian, was like, just quit. We'll figure it out. This is like three months before our wedding. Like I'm making good <laughs> money as a graphic designer. And he's, you know, he's in IT, but he's also a composer as well. He was finishing up his master's in composition. He's like, just quit. Just quit. Just quit. And Christina Smith, who I was studying flute with, was like, just quit. It'll be easy. I'm like, yeah, lady. Easy for you to say. You have a full-time gig in Atlanta Symphony. But, you know, just quit. So I quit. Um, and was able to wrangle together studio. Uh, one of my friends was leaving the country and she said, you want my studio? And I was like, yes, please. So that was an easy foundation for financial security, which was really my only worry. Um, and then we got married. So my medical insurance was taken care of. Um, Mm. but yeah, poor Brian, I always say he really got the switcheroo because like I was making decent money with a decent job and then like three months, you know, my income was cut in half, you know, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we were freelancing and I'd been doing it for, I think, a couple of years. And then I cold emailed Mary about a flute duo I had and they answered. <laughs> <laughs> You're the only people that answered. Really? Cold emailing never works for composers, oh. but I guess, I guess you like you said the way I structured the email because it was like I actually went to your website and listened yeah. to things. Yeah, yeah, and and said I you you play music like this and yeah, it seems like you would be a good fit. Yeah, yeah. and we met at the uh, International Alliance of Women in Music Congress mm-hmm. in uh, Flagstaff in 2011. Yeah, 2011, <laughs> yeah. and she's been stuck with me. Because we've been doing <laughs> collaborations ever since then. Yep. We just hit it off. Um, you know, when you find your fellow weirdo, you stick yeah, with you them. Yeah, you stick with them. <laughs> That's so, awesome. Yeah. Um, we didn't, yeah, I didn't die from that internet connection. That was nice. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. Ooh. Things you don't, you shouldn't do, but I did anyway. I meet my best friends on the internet. <laughs> I've been on the internet. Oh. So bad ideas. Uh-huh. But they worked out. I mean, yeah. yeah. And then yeah. we decided to just... Mary usually has the harebrained ideas about what we should do. And then I just go along with them. <laughs> and then you wrangle them in. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. Yeah. That's awesome. Awesome. And I, I love your collaborating relationship with the two of you. So I want to talk a little bit about that. Because you've collaborated on a lot of stuff. In the email you had sent me. Um, you talked about how you've collaborated on like presentations, workshops, performances, and an album. Can you talk a little bit about some of the projects that you've collaborated on and um, and about your relationship when it comes to collaborating? Yeah. Well, let's see. I mean, it, in the beginning, um, we it was mainly premieres. Like we, yeah. I premiered or and was part of chamber ensembles works that she had already composed Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and then then it started to turn into like commissions you wrote uh, the piece for matt 
and for me, right? The yeah. two flutes and cello mm-hmm. at his recital. Um, and then once we had met a few times and got to know each other, you know, we realized like our, our outlook on music and more importantly, just life <laughs> was very similar and we enjoyed hanging out and we both see like every conference as like a gateway to also do some fun or crazy oh, trip God, yeah. or like, it's yeah, just an excuse camping. Right. We're like, well, we'll do this premiere or we'll do this conference <laughs> and then we'll go camping <laughs> or, or like, Oh, Orlando. Yeah. We'll go to Disney oh, for a God. couple of days. Yeah. And <laughs> so That's awesome. That was yeah. a lot of fun. Um, but then of course, you know, the premieres turned into, you know, some conferences where we did speaking yeah. engagements. We've talked about, um, the performer composer collaboration. And mm-hmm. I would say every every time we've done a speaking engagement, it's been something that was kind of born organically where we say, well, what are the things that we already do? And then we can just talk about that experience rather than like coming up with a topic and then having to fill the time, I guess. Yeah, it's always um, yeah. where our lives have intersected. Yeah. Um, and the composer performer thing, but also our outlook on new music and extended techniques. Sure. Yeah. 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 And and the music that we appreciate and value mm. and um we're kind of just game for for anything in terms of new music and and we're like sure we'll try that i'll try anything <laughs> once and then you know no matter how wild the piece is and then sometimes yeah, it's just once in a lifetime right like I've, <laughs> I've found myself barefoot with jingle bells around my ankles like while i'm <laughs> playing this choreographed piece and honestly actually i love that that, that that's piece. is that the one on your website piece. wait hold up um just I'm lots of crazy sure things on that her website one is on my website oh never mind no you're wearing sparkly yeah. shoes in this video. Oh, okay. Oh, Easily yeah. confused. Lots of sparkly shoes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Love it. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and then we did the album. That was the yeah. Next that big was that project. was your all these are like all the things project. Mary comes with me with these ideas. Like I get a phone call like, hey, what you doing? I'm like, nothing. What? Make an album? Like I, <laughs> like with what money? She's like, we'll figure it we'll out. Figure I'm like, it oh out. my god, sure. Yep. <laughs> And she always acts like surprised and like, you're gonna make me do work. And it then is. hangs up. And then like a day later, I'll get a call back going, yeah, I mean, of course we're gonna do it. Right, <laughs> right. It's just a, like, that's just how I operate. Sure. I think you're used to it now. Like, like I will be hemming yeah. and hawing the whole time. Because sure. it's a lot, like, mm. it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And doing an album was going to be a lot of work and money. Um, and trying to figure out how to and the logistics of it Mm because we lived and what we were going to put on the album um, we lived so far apart I was still I mean I've been in Atlanta forever um, but she was in Boulder and then we were like who else do we need to rope in and we're like well Matt Angelo so um, (laughs) so he he came on yeah and he was in Pennsylvania and he came on and luckily Jessica was um, um was already the pianist was already in in boulder so that made mm-hmm. at least that easy but mm-hmm. and the sound engineer and the yeah the place so it was really just matt and i that needed to get our tuchuses out there um which any excuse to go to boulder like right. again these are all just reasons <laughs> for the three of us to get together at any go, go hiking yeah, yeah road go hiking yeah and then our most recent big project is this book that we right. just wrote and released and that was a. It started the same way as the album, mm-hmm. where you were like, "What are you gonna make me do?" Because I'll always go, "I have an idea," and yeah. she's like, "All right, lay it on me." And then you're like, "That's a lot." I'm like, "Well, we have time." Yeah, <laughs> that was 
COVID, that was our COVID project. Our COVID, COVID project. project. Yes, everybody yeah. had a COVID project this past year. Yeah. yeah, but we've been talking about something like that needed to be right. done for for basically since we met. Like there mm-hmm. were just it was this void of a method ex- a to etude book focusing on extended techniques that only focused on one at a time. That was like for people who had not done it before. You know, yeah. there's all these books and resources for people that were very advanced players, but you know, Mary had experience teaching younger players and mm-hmm. certainly I did, and that wasn't available to mm. them. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, if you decided to play a modern piece, all of a sudden there's all these, a crazy load of extended techniques and it could be overwhelming. Right. Um, and we felt there was this gap, but then I had run out of contract commission contracts at that point, like everything had dropped off. Um, by the, and Mary wasn't traveling as much, even though she was doing a whole bunch of recordings and online things, mm-hmm. but we were both stuck somewhere and had <laughs> the time and yeah. It was the only time it was going to, I mean, she called me and was like, oh, I don't, uh, but I was like, I don't know when, if we don't do it now, it will never happen. Yeah. Well, and for my end, like my part of the book was writing all of the, you know, tutorials, the pedagogy side Mm -hmm. of things. And that felt like the right time to do it because I now had four years of consistent collegiate teaching, you know, freshmen through seniors who are putting together the most, you know, introductory extended techniques pieces new music all the way mm-hmm. through the most advanced pieces for senior recitals in grad school and so I felt like I had a chance to observe and it was mm-hmm. like a you know a research project basically collect data for for two and a half years at the time we started writing on like what do they struggle with um, how are the ways that I can break it down and teach it in the same way that I would teach you know traditional tone and make their tone better And so I had all of these resources at my disposal because I was teaching everything that I wrote in the book is something that I say, you know, on a weekly Mm -hmm. basis at my job. Um, And so it was just kind of putting that all down on paper in a really organized fashion. And, you know, and I love Nicole's music and so much of what she writes for the flute um, for younger people her your your pieces for like high school flute choirs or bands or um like smorgasbord they are pedagogically minded pieces Mm -hmm. they are you know either in their length or in the way that you break down extended techniques so she's the perfect person and even we're having the virtual flute um convention is going on right now the national flute convention Mm -hmm. and i heard someone say in an introductory about nicole yesterday they called her the extended techniques guru of our field (laughs) um that she's known her name is synonymous in you know the flute world with writing really well for extended techniques and using a great variety and so it made sense that you'd be the one you know to write the etudes and then I kind of looked at them and and thought all right if my student was standing right here in front of me how would I teach them and then in some cases I would workshop it too I would say I would explain it to them in the step-by-step that I wrote out to see if I was missing anything or if I was over explaining and there was too much mm-hmm. and I could take it out. Um, so yeah, it was a great project that um, we, and we trusted each other, right? Like, Oh I didn't, yeah. I mean, this is not something I have a trust issue working with anybody in general. And so, yeah, I mean with, with working, having a relationship with Mary for so long, I knew that like if she was bringing something up, that was an issue. It was a big issue. <laughs> it wasn't just something that she just wanted to put her stamp or her name on or, or just was it it just there was something 
wrong we had to address <laughs> missing well and so. same same with your feedback yeah. on my side like at one point you were joking like i don't i don't need to read it i trust you and i was like what if i wrote something <laughs> horrible <laughs> and this is why i liked working so with her it. because i hate <laughs> writing text or writing about music in general and that's something she's trained at and enjoys and so it worked for me that all I had to worry about was writing the etudes. And then, you know, and I did the same thing. I had an unusual year where I had a good crop of advanced students. They're all seniors or just really accelerated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I could try them out uh, on my students to make sure that what I was writing was challenging, but not impossible yeah. for someone just getting to know extended techniques. I had one that's really sta- like really good extended techniques and then the rest of them we were just starting to break the seal on it mm-hmm. um and and so it was kind of nice that we the both of us could could workshop these um and i yeah. don't think we've mentioned the title of the book which is beatboxing oh, and yeah. beyond beatboxing and beyond so An it addresses method. like beatboxing <laughs> and jet whistles and whistle tones and key clicks and pizzicatos and harmonics multiphonics all yeah. all the the many many things and there's stuff we've probably left out because it's just Volume book two. one yeah <laughs> <laughs> we kept telling our to ourselves like we can do that in the next volume we can layer it in the next volume we can expand upon it in the sure. next volume well and because you know nicole mentioned like i'm usually the one that's like let's do this thing but what she is so gifted at is then like bringing it down, bringing it into focus, making it cohesive and make sense. Is it? Is, or is it just that I'm no, lazy? No, I there's don't. There's a little bit of that. Like there's, I think you're very ambitious, and I want to do as little work as possible. I need to be and I think in. we offset each other. It balances. Yeah. Right. But there were there were several occasions where you were saying, you know, we can't be everything to everyone with one yeah. book. You know, it can't serve this 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 and this because i call her like should i add a new chapter on this or a new section on this or add this and she's like it's only book one (laughs) you know we can always do more later and um so so i'm really i'm really proud of like you know this finished product and and the things that we were able to cover but it wasn't you know too too much and then um based on you know feedback or all of the ideas we had that got trimmed from book one we we do plan to do a book two at some point i'm already I'll getting anxious it. like you're talking about it like oh god when are we gonna do but that we're busy again now. We're now, well, yeah mary's coming up with ideas again in real time here so i know i know it's not she's had this plan i'm just getting <laughs> knowledge of it now <laughs> like what are you doing in 2026 i have this idea well she she knows that she also has to warm me up to things so she'll just hint at stuff and like break me down over time i do yeah i plan a i'm a teacher right we plant a seed and then we step away and yeah right right so manipulated yeah well and i love the way that you've conceptualized this book as well because you know like you said both of you teach and you're able to like try things on your students and i feel like um, composers need to do that more, right? Especially if they're uh, writing for a younger crowd of kids, right? Um, and and like you said, challenging them without making something that's impossible for them to play. And I and I do appreciate that a lot. I, I there's this big hole in classical music when it comes to etude books and also um, solos for younger students mm-hmm. where there's like nothing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Because um, and, and it's because it's challenging to write for younger students. Yes. you have to really know that instrument. Yeah. I mean, I'm writing a middle school band piece. I mean, I've written a couple of middle school band pieces, but 
you know, the band writer tells me this is for um, a middle school band that can play grade five. And I'm like, oh, my God, what is that like? And, you know, and he sent yeah. me recordings of, of them. And I'm just like, I feel like I'm lost at sea. Like, I mm. I should be writing for middle school, but I don't feel like I am because the level that they're playing at is so bizarre for that yeah. age. Um, but, um, but, you know, it's like you have to just kind of vomit stuff on the page and then go back through and edit out like what what is doable you yeah know? um and so and then having people like you you trust like a good band director and sending them that and, and just saying what what have I done that is just not suitable for this ensemble yeah and like yeah and being realistic because because yeah. like the the level stuff is so subjective right uh-huh. like I mean we all know like we look at a piece and they're like oh this is a level two and you're looking at it and you're like that is not a level two like a level two can be so many different things level three can be so many different things um it it depends on the group too so yeah it is it is hard to write for middle school I wish more people did (laughs) this is my my band director uh, opinion coming out I really wish more people did because I feel like there's a lot of glory in writing for you know high school and beyond but I feel like the little kids get left out a little bit um and and I yeah I I definitely think there's a big hole in there and there's uh there's money to be made there as well because not many people are um writing for middle school there's kind of a monopoly between like a small group of composers that are you know men you've hit hit (laughs) the nail on the head the problem with middle school band is that it's um it's not glamorous nope it's challenging to write for um, and it's because of the, the level and to, to make that piece interesting. Yeah, you know? for sure. Um, Cause some of the things I love to do, I'm like, no, you cannot just go from three, eight to uh, four, yep. four, um, <laughs> and, you know, let's watch sixth this. graders panic. Yes. Oh my God. Like, like, I'm like, should I put it in the key of a flat? You know, everybody's going to miss that D flat. You know, they are. So, you know, I have to have very good reason or, you know, or think differently. It's a different challenge. So it's mm-hmm. nice to have that challenge after writing flute. For so yes. And, and little flute players hate D flat because it's just a pinky oh, and then yeah. their flute oh. falls off their hands. So, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Wildly <Yeah>. aware. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I know my flute fingerings kind of. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. So yeah, good. I mean, I'm a trumpet player. I don't have those issues with all these things. I just got like a whole other three buttons that I press down. Yeah. We're, we're very oh, simple-minded God. people. It's fine. Oh, that's so great, though. Um, but yeah, no, that is that is definitely a hole, and I'm, I'm glad you are you are trying to to fill it in a way that you are helping like a wide range of students in that way. And also, like I wanted to note because um, you had noted this as well, is that Flute Talk magazine pointed out that this may be the only instance of a method book written, composed, and published by women, which I think is awesome, of course. Representation is always great. Um, And I hope that more people um, try to tackle projects like this. So do you have any advice for like anyone who's like maybe listening and thinking about composing a method book um, for younger students or collaborating with, you know, musicians and composers to write something like this, like just based upon your experience? I'll let you talk more about the, the composing side of things, but I just, um, my advice is to to write what you know, yeah. that it's always going to be more challenging if you're trying to write about something that's not in your life or that you're not doing. Um, mm-hmm. So for me, I was just writing, you know, putting on paper um, things I'm teaching and, and working into my curriculum, into my studio 
every day. Um, and I also have taught middle schoolers and I've taught, mm -hmm. you know, high schoolers and tiny ones and college students. And so I could also conceptualize, you know, how do I do this in the beginning and then what's the trajectory? So where do we start if I want them to be at this point by the end of, you know, this year or by the end of their degree program? Um, and so my advice is to just take some time to think about what what you know best and what you're you know the the expert or an expert on, um, and then just and then just go for it. Like Nicole said, I'm always the well we'll figure out the logistics later. You know, <laughs> we'll just mm -hmm. we'll just start doing this idea, and then whether it's funding or distribution or publicity, whatever it is, we'll figure that out as we go. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's my advice is to everybody has that thing that. Um, they know very well and could talk about all day yeah. without notes. And that's the thing I think, you know, we should write books about. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, what they tell English majors, right? And yeah. novel writers. I mean, I think it's the same way for composers. Like, I write a lot for flute. Um, and because I played flute, I'm very familiar with it. And so it's idiomatic, hopefully somewhat. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Page turns, maybe not. But <laughs> <laughs> I get a lot of flack for my life. Page turns. <laughs> Um, but you know, I, I it's this it's the same. Um, you know, write what interests you, and you know, a lot of like we talked about my piece smorgasbord earlier. Um, that I wrote that piece to teach myself how to do a lot of these extended techniques. Mm -hmm. um, and I think being a composer who performs that's very helpful. And my professor at UGA, I don't think I ever talked about college. Um, I studied with Dr. Wand and Flute, who who was who's no longer with us, but was um, was very integral in keeping me from quitting that one time, which I really was on my way to change my major, and he stopped me. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, Dr. Davis's Dr. Davis William Davis was a is is he's still with us um, is a fantastic bassoon player um, and very interested in extended techniques and mm. um taught composition he just was really it was really important to him that i kept playing flute and not drop my instrument mm -hmm. um and i think that's the best advice i can get a composer um not only because it keeps you practical but also no one's gonna play your junk for mm. a very long time so you will probably be the only one playing your stuff yeah so i think it gives you insight about how to write for performers and also uh, what you should write. Um, so that would be my biggest advice to little budding composers or Aww. adult or adult composers or adult musicians who's thinking about composing. It's never too late. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I know a lot of people get that like women shouldn't be composers. I mean, that's, a, that's something I've heard Valerie Coleman talk about mm -hmm. um, often how she was uh dissuaded to, to be a performance major in, in, instead. Um, so I was lucky that I went to a university where the composition chair went out of his way to make sure women felt included and sought them out to be composers in the studio uh, and would make all sorts of accommodations when personal things came up that would be roadblocks for them. Um, and, you know, would try to get women composers in front of us, whether it be recordings and also um, he had Joan Tower come in, which was a big. A big awesome. Deal. Yeah. She yeah. She's great. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Got to have a little lesson with her by myself. He made a point of that. So. 
That's awesome. This was Lewis Nielsen who taught it. Um, oh, geez. I think it was Oberlin. He moved on to Oberlin after UGA. Okay, cool. Retired now. Yeah. yeah, that was actually going to be my next question for you, Nicole, was about, you know, the representation piece, being a woman composer and that sort of thing. Um, and I'm glad you had such a positive experience in that way. But yeah, yeah I do agree. Like, um, I think, you know, the two of you are both flute players and you both identify as women. So, you know, you're, you're kind of like everybody, <laughs> right? Like everybody that plays the flute, um, it is very, a very female dominated instrument, but then, you know, spinning it around, like Mary, you teach at a university level. There's, it's a very male dominated field teaching at a university level, uh, maybe not so much flute, but yeah, like that's, that's pretty male dominated. And then Nicole, you're a composer, which is also a very male dominated career. So like having the, you know, being a part of a community of flute players, you know, growing up and everything, you're around women all the time. And then having it kind of like flip in that way, like, do you have any sort of experiences that you can talk about where you've kind of like <laughs> felt that flip or any sort of challenges that you've experienced, you know, being women in your field now? Uh, that was a loaded yeah. question. Sorry. It's, it, it, no, no, it's, <laughs> no, it's, it's important. Question. I mean, there's been a couple of moments with me. Um, Dr. Juan, um, he recognized that there was a shift. He was, mm -hmm. he was retiring the year I graduated. So he'd been teaching almost 50 years at that point. Um, which, so I graduated in 2000. So he must have been teaching in the mid 50s. Mm-hmm. So he saw the transformation of women and he told me this. He was like, you know, there was a time where he said, I, women, he was just, it was just a worry. He had women came here to find a husband. And he said, and now yeah. he's like, you guys are, are trying to make a go of this. And it's a very, very difficult field. Mm -hmm. And you have a lot of cards stocked, stacked up against you. Mm -hmm. He was just concerned. It wasn't, he wanted to, he felt a burden to make sure we were prepared. Yeah. Um, and my dad, who was a pilot, army pilot, he taught one of the first female pilots to fly Chinooks. And I remember wow. being like 10 or 11. And so this is like the eighties. And he, I remember coming home and he was just kind of complaining to my mom, but he knew cause he had three girls. He was concerned about us too. He's like, this poor woman, like she has to be three times as good as everybody else to mm -hmm. be taken seriously. And I like, I, I gotta make, you know, he felt this burden to make sure that she wasn't, that she was ready more than ready than everybody else because she was going to have a harder time than anybody. Yeah. Um, and so those were kind of things that have always been back in my, my memory, but I've always, I felt like supported in my education, no matter, no matter what, mm -hmm. I mean, my, but um, but when I left, I felt it more when I left actually academia. Mm -hmm. um, in mm -hmm. fact, that I don't did I tell you about this when we were at that conference, that very first one in Flagstaff, it was the last day you had already gone back home, but I stayed for the orchestra concert. Oh. I did tell you about this. And um, <laughs> they were playing some music by I think it was Hillary Ton. And I, the whole concert was amazing. And I'm like, why are we? And this is where I missed the boat on lady composer conferences like understanding their purpose. <laughs> I was like, I thought it was just to make sure that we were all more developed because we had been overlooked in our education. And mm -hmm. I thought that's what it was for. But I didn't understand it was about just being ex excluded no matter how good you were. I was sitting there thinking, man, this is so good. Why are we having these festivals? We're awesome. These 
these this is beautiful music why isn't anybody like playing this all the time and then i heard a voice behind me said well that was just a bunch that was just a sexually frustrated concert of women <laughs> and i expected when i turned around to see someone a generation or two older than me and i turned around and it was a kid wow like 18 or something and i just remember i just remember like being dumbfounded like there's nothing i could say um because we all know if that had been written by a man it would have not the sexual yeah it would have said sexually frustrated yeah (laughs) no it would have just it would have just felt like you know just very moving music i guess i don't i don't know and that got me all jazzed up after at that point that i was um had been living in a bubble yeah by people that actually cared about sure. my future and um i did not have that safeguard anymore nothing like misogyny to get us buzzed up <laughs> right <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah i don't know what about you yeah well it's um it's interesting because when you know we first start playing flute as you said the, the flute is a female dominated instrument even mm-hmm. today at the you know, elementary, middle school, high school mm. band level. And I have memories of like the only boy in my flute section. And I think it was middle school um, was bullied so much and made yep. fun of for it that he quit and he went and played something else. And so my earliest memory and my earliest mindset was like the opposite was like that this is a girl's instrument mm-hmm. and, you know, and boys don't play this one. Which even as a, a little kid, I thought was wrong and horrible. And, and he was so good at the flute. So I remember being really sad, too, <laughs> that yeah. Yeah. You know, he wasn't in our section. And um, and then as I got older, I would say, kind of like you were saying, Nicole, I felt very sheltered. I felt mm-hmm. incredibly lucky that I was raised by just powerhouse of a woman who <laughs> never told me that I couldn't do anything, you know, other than being jokes and sarcasm, like, you know, quit, quit if someone tells you to quit, right? Um, but there, it never crossed my mind that there was something that I would not be able to do or that someone would think that I was less competent because of my gender in my mm-hmm. life, like as a kid. And when I got to college, you know, my professors are were incredibly supportive. And um, I, I generally felt like I was based on or my people judge me based on how I played or my academics and the content of my character right the quality of my character um first and foremost but then I think as you get older as you're moving through undergrad and grad school and then moving out into the real world that's when you start to see it you start Mm -hmm. to you know collect the the comments and you know, being told things like, oh, well, we hired you for this gig because you're not bad to look at either. And, no. you know, yeah, things. Gross. Um, right. Yeah. Comments that at the time would not register as, you know, being problematic. <laughs> and then later you're like, that's wildly inappropriate, yeah. <laughs> you know, especially for someone running a concert venue to say to a 19 year old woman. Um, yeah. That's when we were playing the duo. And, um, you know, and just other inappropriate uh small comments um Mm -hmm. so i i feel lucky that nothing major ever happened to me personally that discouraged me from continuing on and continuing in my studies but but i had friends who did leave music or did quit music because of incredibly um sad or scary or just generally misogynistic you know comments or outlook um 
And so, but then I got into the real world. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's when I had a job um, where for the first time in my life, I experienced being treated differently and being judged differently and the, because of my gender. And it made me so mad because <laughs> everyone else in my life had judged me based on, you know, at a job, how I did my job, and yeah. um, and I and I was thinking like, don't they know what degrees I have? Don't they yeah. know, you know, mm-hmm. what school I went to, or mm-hmm. or whatever, or that I wrote a dissertation and I graduated with a four and all of these things, and it just didn't seem to matter. So I, you know, I was often not referred to as doctor. I was offered a salary that was ten thousand dollars lower than my male counterpart starting mm. salary. Um, and thankfully, I, I knew that going in and I just flat out said, well, he makes this. So I think that should be our starting point. And then we can negotiate from there. <laughs> uh, and my dad works in HR. So he, <laughs> of course, coached me through that conversation yeah. so that I could come off as confident yeah. You know, yeah. in the actual conversation. Um, and, and it just made me really mad. But as an educator, I guess I have channeled my anger <laughs> in those situations <laughs> through trying to make it better for my students. So I'm like, I, I will bear this weight so that hopefully one day you don't have to. And so that it is even, you know, not fixed, but better yeah. for you when you go through this process. And hopefully you won't be undervalued, whether, you know, it's through money or your title or mm-hmm. um, how people speak to you. Um, and it's exhausting. It yeah. feels like we should be not not have to deal with this anymore because we sh- we should have uh, taken care of this, you know, long ago. But um, I do feel like as and I know this isn't true for every field, but as a composer, I feel like my graying hair has helped. I feel like I'm not treated as a child anymore. Mm. As age, much. yeah, age has something yeah. to do with it. It does. But I know that's not true either for every um, part. Like performing musicians feel like, mm-hmm. yeah, their age is in it, is also a problem. Yeah. Um, and so I have just I'm just letting my hair go because I feel like it has. <laughs> It has helped me. I feel like I am. I don't know. I feel like I in mo- some situations that has helped people not dismiss me as as much as when I was was younger. Yeah. So at least now it's just the one thing. Now it looks like at least I have experience. It's, or it, maybe it's, it's giving me more confidence and more crotchetiness or cantankerousness. <laughs> I don't know, but it's giving me confidence. So whatever. But I feel like that has also helped me some age. Yeah, no, it's important that you mention that because I mean, for me and in my experience, I'm um, a woman trumpet player who also is a high school band director and I make up like, I don't even know what percentage of women play trumpet, but I know for high school band directors, it's like 15% of high school band directors are women. Um, And so for me, I have like that double duty, but I also, you know, I'm young and I'm not a very large human either. So yeah. I also think that that has something to do with it too. Like I'm kind of a small petite person. I'm only five foot four. I'm a woman and I play the trumpet and I'm also a high school band director. So I like all yeah. these things yeah. that like kind of collectively bring me to this experience of, um, you know, I've had a lot of these issues um, in the past and, you know, I, I recently moved jobs, but at my old job, um, the high school choir director was a man and I was the high school band director. And so like we would have concerts or whatever performances and they would always assume that he was the band director and I was oh, the choir director, right? I was in um, the same situation. Yeah. yeah. And they're she always the like surprised. Situation actually. Yeah. 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 
So they're always like surprised that it's me. Right. And you know, I, I'm not very old either. I'm 23 years old. Um, I started teaching high school students at 21. So I did not look much older than my students. So that also had another layer of things as well. So age does have a lot to do with it. Like people don't think that you know what you're doing when you're young, even if you do, um, even if I did it, to have that assumption is not sure. cool, right? No, no. Um, mm-hmm. So like, you know, I've had parents like talk down to me before, oh, yeah. assuming, you know, that I didn't know what I was doing, things like that. And not even to mention like the whole trumpet world, because that is just a whole other <laughs> can of worms, right? I believe it. I've, yeah, I've yeah. had, I've, I mean, I don't have, I'm not a trumpet player, but I, as a composer, you kind of, a little bit of each world. And I've seen mm-hmm. some of the trumpet backlash for, for women is just so crazy to me yeah all those instrument so stereotypes open. we learned when we were kids in school I know. <laughs> yeah are pretty accurate at face value yes in uh in selecting a text when i was teaching woodwind methods um a couple of years ago and there are some still some textbooks from i think that were published in the 70s oh God. that mm-hmm. yeah that gender the instruments and yep um you know talk about those qualities and I and I remember you know I'm just flipping through different texts decide which one I want to use and I read something that said you know the feminine flute and then I closed it and was like nope <laughs> yep. <laughs> put that aside um but it was a great talking point in the woodwind methods class we yeah. we talked about that um, yeah. and made it a you know just a normal part of the class and and how we are going to address that as future teachers. And my my awesome. one of my my best friends here in Atlanta. She is a fantastic middle school band director, and um, she would have me come in and teach. And last the last year that I went in before COVID, she had one girl flute player, and the rest were boys. Mm. Wow! And her trombone and brass section. Well, trombone and brass. Why did I say it like that? The <laughs> brass section. It was the opposite. It was all girls. Wow. I mean, she had like gone out of her way to purposely flip it. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, to desensitize or to, oh, geez, now I can't talk anymore. Um, but like to just normalize. Yeah, yeah. to normalize that it was, uh, it doesn't, that's nonsense. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and so if that kid was tested and could make a note out of that instrument the best that's the instrument she encouraged them to play yeah Yeah. Um, that's awesome yeah and it was it was an amazing turnover and you know she's been teaching for 20 years and Mm -hmm. it's I'm sure it wasn't it's not sudden it's been gradual but it was just so crazy that one year it was just completely on its head Mm. yeah Um, but yeah yeah that's great I mean I think for like me like I think I've used from the beginning, I was never, um, I was never a very feminine kid, right? Like I was definitely like a tomboy growing up. And so like, for me, like I totally knew that like trumpet was quote unquote a boy's instrument because mainly men play trumpet. Like I knew that going in and I guess I just used that to like fuel my fire. Like it would just like piss me off. I was like, okay, well then I'm going to beat all the boys in my section. That's fine. Um, but like the, the problem with that is then like 
how much more of a positive experience would I have had if I just had more women representation? How much more of a positive experience would I have if I played a piece by a woman composer at all? (laughs) Until I didn't play a piece by a woman composer at all until I was in college. How much more of a positive experience would I have had if um, I had more women band directors growing up, except for my seventh grade band director, and that was it. Um, You know what I mean? So like, yes, it like, kind of motivated me but not in like a healthy way right and so I'm, I'm wondering how many girls are you know, discouraged isn't always the best motivator. exactly <laughs> like it motivated me but would it yeah. motivate the next person no, probably no, not right yeah. so I was always like I'll show them you know like <laughs> but how much more of a more positive environment could that have been if that was if that was different and so that, that's why you know representation is so important and um you know like like we were talking about like showing now future teachers showing students um that anyone can succeed in that way and so like I realized that I am also like just me being in my body and being in my the career that I'm in I'm already doing that but like doing this work is also super important as well yes yeah Yeah. and I can relate in my job now and I should say my job now it's it's wonderful like equitable in, in terms of salary it's a mm-hmm. wonderful supportive environment Yay. I, yeah yeah love and respect <laughs> all my colleagues um I will say though that our our breakdown in our department we have I think 24 full-time um either tenure track or tenured faculty and only four of us are women mm-hmm. um and I'm the only one that's on uh in the band area on a band instrument yep. um the others are in voice piano music ed um and so there are oftentimes I'll find myself, I'm looking around the room and I am the only woman in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, almost daily. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel fine. Like I, you know, I don't end up in situations where I'm feeling like a token or, or whatever it is. But I, I just think about my students and like, re- again, repre- representation. Yeah. And then sometimes I put a lot of... <laughs> lot of stress or burden on myself I'm like what if I'm the only one they're looking at like as a a woman in academia you know mm-hmm. and 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 that feels really heavy like and I'll say sometimes yep. like well just because like I've chosen you know not to have children we don't have kids um yet like or maybe at all who knows um mm-hmm. doesn't mean that you can't and be a professor you know in higher oh. ed as a woman um and so I, I want to make sure that they see like a variety of different women in this yeah. job and mm-hmm. in this career path. And so they know that lots of things are possible um, and that it's not just this one. <laughs> and they're like, Absolutely. Oh, so we're all going to have lots of cats and dogs one we day. We all have to be like Dr. Matthews. <laughs> and I, and I, know that's, I know that's not the case, but sometimes it feels when you're the only person that's oh, yeah. representing something in a certain space, you, you, take that on right oh yeah it's an immense amount of pressure oh for sure yeah Yeah. I I don't want to be the only (laughs) you know exactly um but it's uh it's interesting yeah and and so like you said um things are definitely slowly they get more equitable but you know here we are in 2021 and that is the breakdown of our particular school and I don't think Mm -hmm. we're unique in that at all no (laughs) um it's very common at least for there to be majority male even if it's not quite our same breakdown I think I was listening to one of your podcasts and had um Julia from music uh for women Mm -hmm. yeah interviewed her and she had broken down all of the statistics for yes private and public universities it's shocking is it it is very shocking oh for sure and yeah your school is not unique and and 
at all. I mean, you know, being a brass player, like I, you know, I pay special attention to what's going on the brass programs in different universities. And I mean, looking at, you know, BW, looking at Eastman, there's not a single woman that teaches a brass instrument at all there. Um, and I'm trying like BW, I don't think there's a woman that teaches woodwinds either. Yeah. I was just no. thinking about that. No. The viola professor is a woman. And obviously a bunch of the voice faculty and piano faculty are, but I believe that is it as far as like, um, like primary instrument teaching. That's it. Um, Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, Eastman, I think there's a few more um, teaching, but like, as far as like brass goes, there's no one, everybody's a guy. Um, Yeah, that's crazy to me. Um, And so I know it's not the case at every place, but I I do think that that's, you know, the general trend uh, for sure. And a lot of it's also based upon orchestras as well right so like a lot of the people that become employed in universities um also have an orchestra career in some way and so when we look at orchestras and how they're kind of playing out right orchestras are very male dominated in a lot of instruments and so that kind of like trickles down into the collegiate level i feel like i mean like talking about Baldwin Laws again, just because Mary went there and so did I, but like, you know, most of the brass faculty that are employed there as well play in the Cleveland Orchestra. And if you look at the Cleveland Orchestra's brass section, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. this isn't a diss on them, but like, that's just the way it happened to be. Right. So, sure. um, slow work, slow work is being done, but it's yeah. still, it's still a little scary and yeah, for 2021, yeah. like you said. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's important to, talk to my students who are, you know, about to go out into the job market, just to point these things out to my, yeah. to my female students. Um, I have two music ed seniors this year who were applying for a scholarship last year. It was um, women band directors scholarship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was great. And I remember though, when they were looking for recommendation letters, mm. they said, I think the guidelines said something like they would prefer to have one woman band director as uh, one of the references. Mm-hmm. And the three of us sat down and not one of us could think of someone to ask that yeah. knew them or that was in our region yeah. that they had worked with, that I had worked with, yeah. who, you know, um, who might have met them or heard my studio play so they could talk about them. And after we all sat there in silence, kind of racking our brains, we're like, well, this is bad. This is this is why we have this scholarship, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> um, and why I'm so thrilled that, you know, I'll be graduating to future band directors this year. Um, and both hoping to stay and teach in either Tennessee, Alabama, Georgia region. Um, and so we, you know, as, as teachers, we can only produce the students and mm-hmm. that we, we want to see, right, <laughs> in the classrooms and um, set them up for success and not scare them. I never want to scare my students yeah. and say these are all of the difficult situations that I've faced in this, um, but also to be honest and you know, that's a delicate balance that I have to keep of being honest with them about my experiences and what they might face and how to navigate it, but also not make it a horror story that makes them want to leave the field. But they see it and they do know. I mean, even the ones like, so I, I wish mine goodbye, you know, by the time they graduate high school and they ask me about it like they see it and you know I've had some uh, non-white students that ask they have legitimate concerns about going into a business you know of their with being the race they are and Mm -hmm. um, you know and it's we have to have real talk about it and what they can do to 
preserve their sanity as they move forward, you know, in this career, uh, looking different than everyone else around them. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so that's that's a hard thing to do, <laughs> you know, uh, especially when you're not the one that brought it up. You know, your student brings it up because they mm -hmm. see it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, they see it with the very few experience they've had. Um, and that's that's a tough conversation, but I've had it a few times um, recently, especially. Yeah. And I feel like as women and as teachers, we are more aware of that and we're more aware of the necessity for those conversations. But I would encourage any male listeners who are educators in any way to also have those conversations yeah. um, because you may be the only person that that student can have a conversation like that with like what if you're their only teacher right yeah, so yeah. i would encourage you to also have those conversations with your students you know whether or not you are of the same gender because that is the reality right this is the world that we live in and like being a supportive ally is also um needed as well so yeah, yeah. I I mean, we, and wonderful. we we have had that like you know you've had that with george pope i had that mm -hmm. with dr wallen mm -hmm. and yeah um, my band directors too uh it was yep. it was like you can just do this just ignore the shenanigans around yes you. Um, <laughs> yeah. but it's it's been you know and my dad included in that conversation even though he wasn't a musician i mean it's obviously they're they're aware of the problems because they see it the behavior mm -hmm. um, oh, in their own gender and because they've grown <laughs> they've yeah. grown fond of you and, and believe in your talents and they worry for you sure. like because they can oh, see yeah. the ugliness that is in store for you it's sometimes not all the times but mm -hmm. but yeah i mean yeah. and i i've had it also as a web designer um i was the only woman in a in a company of 30 yeah and i you know i, I had i made really good friendships with a lot of them that would also report back to me about who not to be friends with. Mm. Yeah. Um, I, you had like both brought up this great point um, when you were talking about like your accomplishments and your education and like how you've, you wish that you were seen for those things. Right. Mm -hmm. But instead we're kind of like seen for, you know, what we look like, what we present as and that sort of thing, because, you know, we are who we are, we are in what fields we are in. And I think that's so important because you know, I've had guests in the show that have talked about like, oh, I would love to not be able to be seen for my gender. I just want to be known as like a trumpet player. I don't want to be known as a woman trumpet player. And like, that's like the double-edged sword, right? Like, I agree. Like, I'd rather just be seen as like, I'm, I teach band and I play the trumpet. Cool. But instead, you know, people attach that female label to the beginning of everything. Sometimes I only get work for it. Yeah, exactly. So like I've gotten I've gotten an email about or two about, hey, I want to commission you because you're a woman because you're a woman. Yeah, it's like With that no double edged mention, sword, right? No mention of if they've actually listened to any of my music. Wow. Yeah. And it's because of your name, too. They're like, oh, her name's Nicole. She must be a woman. OK, I'm going to contact her. She'll write me something. Right. But yeah, it's like the double edged sword. Like we we are we're taking ownership of that. Like, yes, I am a woman. And yes, I'm doing all these things. But then there's also that that tokenism piece that comes in or, you know, they can't just call you a composer. They have to call you a female composer. And whereas they're not calling a, a male composer, a male composer, they're just calling them I a do, composer. I do have a problem with that passive aggressiveness about responding. Thank you, male yes. conductor. Yes, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I've done it. I've done it before. I, I, okay, I responded that way before. I don't know if I need that encouragement, but I thought... <laughs> 
but you know that there's there is that issue there right like we want to take ownership for that but at the same time I don't want that to be my label right so it's like you're walking that line (laughs) all the time you mentioned something really great too when you were you saying a lot of people don't they don't want you to like see your gender or consider your gender at all Mm -hmm. and I also have experiences too like I I am a very feminine I guess person and I have like a high-pitched voice and I love pink and as you say I love my sparkly (laughs) shoes and um and oftentimes for a long time I would purposefully not wear those things try Mm, not talk as high pitch or be mindful of of that pacing or count how many Mm. exclamation points are in my email and then eventually I I just thought like that that's me buying into this idea that being feminine is being less academic, less intelligent, yep. less serious, and you can't take me seriously. So I just went in the opposite direction. I'm like, no, I'm going to be the lady with the sparkly shoes and with the hot pink, you know, usually not hot pink. It's like a lighter pink. But, <laughs> you know, like, it's tasteful. Right, right. A tasteful pink blazer mm-hmm. with my high-pitched loud voice mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. just – that's me and that's who I am. And also I have a doctorate and I'm a professor and and I can speak on these subjects. You can be all the things. Yeah, I can be all the things and I can love Disney and (laughs) I do. (laughs) Um, And I think that's another important part of this conversation too. Absolutely. Like to present in whatever way and still have that be an acceptable way Mm. to present yourself and have the job and the career right. that you want yeah yeah taken taken seriously yeah. <laughs> there's been a lot of studies about that um as well like um women in at the university level also at the high school level and things like that is more more so in like the band director bubble sure. but they're like and, and that's just because like that's the research i've done because i'm like obsessed with this subject but um you know, like women who are band directors do feel pressure to act um, more extroverted if they're introverts. We feel pressure to be more masculine, we feel pressure to dress more masculine, things like that. And so like, I've kind of like, and I don't consider myself a very feminine person, like I said, but I will, I will, you know, dress the way I want to. So maybe one day I'm wearing a dress and heels. And then the next day I'm in a blazer and I'm in, you know, whatever, like Nike high top sneakers. And I like flip it. And like students get really confused. So like, Miss Reed, what is your style? I'm like, it is everything my dude. Like, <laughs> but that's, that's just who I am. It's like, what do I feel like wearing that day? That's what I'm going to wear. And like, I, and, and, and it's a conscious effort in in my brain to like show kids that like no matter what you look like you can be whatever right like and and and, you know gender is the construct right it's on a big spectrum right and the way we um carry ourselves is also on a spectrum so like one day I feel like wearing this the next day I feel like wearing that you look at my closet looks like a hot mess but that's just who I am so um but I think that's that's important as well like um I had Elizabeth Rowe on my show and she, she, she has this one quote that like always stuck out to me. You know, I I went and saw her speak one time and she talked about the personal is political. Mm. Um, And so unfortunately for, you know, people in our field and that sort of thing, like everything you do is going to be political. (laughs) So the way you dress is going to um, cause a response, the way you act is going to cause a response, that sort of thing. And so like that kind of stuck with me. Um, going into teaching and that's like kind of what I, I I carry myself with is that you know you are also representing a whole population of people in your job sure sure and and we're in a field as performers too where yep, absolutely. we think about what we look like yeah. and on stage and how it impacts the music and the performance and the audience's perception of our music um 
for you know for better or for worse right. it's part of the package so we have to talk about it and but I've had like actually George Pope um, we had these conversations in in studio class and he was teaching mainly women I think we had two men in the studio while I was at BW um, but he would have those conversations about you know wearing heels or you know like how to handle a lower cut top or how to make mm-hmm. choices about what you're you're putting on your body and does it match the music and and so he's a, a true performer is a true performer <laughs> and I think he taught us and he talked about it in a way that was so healthy yeah. um you know and that was like 04 to 08 at that time that I was an undergrad um and so now we're having co- conversations open conversations about you know, people policing women's clothing or mm-hmm. um, gendered language and dress codes and all of that stuff. But I felt like he addressed it before a lot of folks were, yeah. and he just addressed it in a really wonderful way. That again, at the time, I didn't think of how important it was yeah. of how I was receiving that messaging. And now it's just one more thing that I'm like thankful to him right. for. <laughs> Is that oh, what okay. Absolutely. I don't think I got that talk. No, you didn't get no, that talk. Maybe you can give that to me the next time I see you. You'll ask him. Yeah, yes. let's ask <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Love it. I right, love it. Right. And so now when I talk to my students, I say, wear something that you can perform in and, mm-hmm. all, and be focused on the music. Right. I don't, my only rules are I don't want you worried about your shoes while you're playing. I don't mm-hmm. want you worried about your dress straps while you're playing. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, like George, I you're, think, you know, it's cool if you match the, the outfit to the piece because then you're thinking about that full performance look. You know, I yeah. wear something very different when I'm performing like an edgy new piece versus when I'm playing my Bach. Um, so that's a fun thing to think about, but it's completely removed from bodies and any sort of body shaming or clothes shaming. Oh, absolutely. I don't mean to spin this conversation on its head. So I'm going to circle back to your book really quick. Okay. Um, <laughs> like, yeah, this whole co- conversation about gender, it's awesome. Um, but uh, I do want to wrap things up. So sure, my last sure. question for you, because this method book just came out, where can, and I, and I know you sent me the, the link to the book, so I'm going to be sure to put this into the um, episode description when it's released, but where can people who might be interested in purchasing this book or any of your other works, where can they go to find um, all that information? Well, they can go to either of our websites, but the, it's all going to lead back to spottedrocket.com. Okay. Uh, and that's where you can find the book and our publication and our album, Mm-hmm. Um, you can also get our album on in the traditional way, like I guess not traditional. I don't know. I have mixed feelings um, on Amazon and iTunes and all that's and Spotify and YouTube. Um, but we have the physical CD too if you're an old timer. And the album is called Three Nine Line. Thank you. Three Nine um, Line. Awesome. Yeah, and that's where you can Spotted Rocket is my publishing company, and it basically it's just a vanity label. So it's all of my music um, is published there, and then some pieces of my husband as he feels ready to release them. Um, but he's a lot more guarded than I am, so it's a lot of my stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so yeah, that's that's where you can find our things, and you know you can also find them naturally like the some of my pieces in our book at uh you can find it at a fluteworld.com um and fluteforyou.com and flute tree if you're in australia Mm. um and possibly some other places outside of the country if you know the website doesn't have uh shipping for outside of the country but if you email me we'll we'll get the shipping figured out 
Then we awesome. It's just a little bit more manual than automatic. That's great. Outside of the country. Yeah. Great. Awesome. Nicole and Mary, I want to thank you so much for being on, for having this awesome conversation, for sharing your insight. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing all of your thoughts. Well, we were so excited you you had us on. Thank you so much. We just popped off an email and never really thought that we'd actually get a chance to be on. So (laughs) I know I'm just, I'm just so famous, everybody. I'm just kidding. No, (laughs) not at all. But thank you again so much.